Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. Hello, I'm Andrew. Andrew Harris. Joining I'm Andrew me Decker. remotely. No, you're joining. No, no. You're joining me remotely. I'm at the desk with the sound system. You're remotely. The beautiful thing about starting it off with the intro is that wherever I am is the location of the podcast. Okay. All right. Whatever. The Does guest is with me. Somehow. <laughs> so, so uh, everybody, I am, I am home calling in from Zoom uh, to where Mr. Decker and our guest are. Uh, because, because why, Andrew? Well, because you're under COVID protocol. Yeah, my gosh, that's the worst. Anyways, you may be able to hear it a little bit in my voice, but I, I assure you, I feel fine. Uh, and we will be, and, be back. And COVID and is not soon. transmissible, transmittable over the internet. So, yeah, not yet, anyways. Thank God. So, well, Andrew, what, what are we doing today? Yeah. Tell well, us today, a bit about today our- we have Matt or Matthew. His actual name is Matthew, but he goes by Matt smid kind of like your name his gets mispronounced often with a shh and i have it's not it's just an s smid uh matt smid he he, he is the most recent addition to the not a partnership oh so he's he's another not a partner he's yeah he's another guy that doesn't want to be my partner <laughs> that is that is awesome i wonder if matt hey matt you're there i, I wonder uh matt do you ever do, do people ever ask you if you have a lisp Cause I get that all the time. People just don't care. They just say Smith or Schmid. Uh, they just don't care. There, there's no follow up yeah. question, Andrew. They just go with how they want to say it. Even people I've known for 10, 15 years. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I get that as well. Yeah. People just want to, they just want to pronounce my name and, and I'll answer, you know, like, why not? I know who they're talking to. Well, yeah, welcome. I'm, Decker is easy. So I don't, I, that doesn't get mispronounced very often. Decker yeah. is easy. Yep. I'm a um, guy. So, Matt, tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll get into your topic. Sure. How sure. did you get into the law, for example? Well, I wish I had some kind of great inspirational story, but really, uh, I my freshman year of college, I played basketball at a really small school called Mary Harden Baylor Division Three Powerhouse, right? But I Wonderful. came to the harsh realization that freshman year that I was not going to be a professional basketball player. So I put in some transfer papers, transfer portal, if you will, as they say now to Texas A&M University. And I got in through this of, uh, political science. That's, that's the way I could get in. And I didn't know anything about political science, but everybody in my class was talking about going to law school. And I said, well, I might as well give it a try. And, and I clerked at a uh, very prestigious law firm of the College Station Municipal Court while I was at, <laughs> I was at Texas A&M. And, and there were some good folks down there, and I got to see them in trial, and I thought, man, this is really neat. This is something I could do. And, and uh, those guys inspired me to apply to law school and ended up getting in, went to Texas Wesleyan, uh, worked for the, as soon as I passed the bar, worked for the Not a Partnership that we are now a part of, Mark Daniel, Tim, Tim Moore, Tim Evans at the time, Lance Evans, uh, those folks. And um, then went to the Johnson County DA's office, did some hard time at that office, 
uh, for about five and a half years, then went to the Tarrant County DA's office, was the chief of the white collar public integrity unit. And then uh, from there, I went to go work at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Dallas for two years. And here I am today sitting with you guys, been in private practice for almost, uh, man, it's, time's flying by. It's been five or six months. So here we go. Right. So that actually kind of brings us to our topic. Uh, Matt, we, we actually had you come on because white collar crime is something I've, I've had one or two cases that would qualify as that, maybe three or four, if I really counted them yeah. up well. Um, Andrew, how about you? How many white collar crime cases do you think you've had? I, I, I've had um, a handful of like what, you know, uh, money laundering, but those were drug related. Um, I've, pr I've got one now that is one pending. It's been pending for a couple of years and th that's white collar. Yeah, sounds about right. All right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so they're not real common. Um, the ones I've had, it's been somebody has taken money from the, well, allegedly taking money from their business or they, yeah. sh they, they, they issued checks that weren't real to, to pay an employee or a contractor. Um, and right. so they ended up in that. Uh, so let's just start with an easy question. Um, what, what makes it a white collar crime? How, yeah. what is a white collar crime? You know, it's funny, uh, at the Tarrant County DA's office, when I was chief of that unit, uh, we became known as the unit of, well, if a core team has a case that's too complicated and they don't want to mess with it and there's money involved, then it was a white collar case. It's kind of what it came down to. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> but practically speaking, from a, uh, in terms of, of from the defense world, I would classify it in the state realm. When you're dealing with a, a theft by deception, that's where someone is is giving you property with consent, but that consent was obtained by deception. That's the big white collar case you see in the state end and misapplication of fiduciary property as well. On the federal end, wire fraud cases, healthcare fraud is a big one too, and that can involve uh, the anti-kickback statute. That's what I focused on over at the DOJ. Uh, those are the big white collar cases you see with state and federal. Okay, so we've already used a lot of big yeah. words, and and Andrew knows I'm not real smart, so I'm going to have have you uh, de define a few things. Yeah. Um, let's start with fiduciary. What would make someone a fiduciary? A position of trust, right? A lawyer, a trustee of trust. Um, it's a loose definition, but uh, there's some case law that breaks this definition down. But really, anyone in position of a trust they're given money and they misapply that money. They don't apply it to, um, uh, to what they're supposed to, and they keep it for themselves. Uh, the cautionary tale here, what I would commonly see at the DA's office is you see a, a, a civil law firm that is not doing so well, perhaps in their civil case, and they try to rope in a prosecutor to, to resurrect their civil case. I would get that countless amount of times at the DA's office, and they would try to phrase it in these fiduciary uh, terms. For instance, contractors uh, going up the supply chain using other subcontractors, they're not getting paid. They would try to rope the DA's office in to get payments. And that's where this can get, the waters can get murky. And if uh, you don't have a prosecutor with their head on right, uh, they could be used as a weapon. That's where it can get scary. Yeah, I've actually had uh, a few of the cases I've had that I think would probably qualify as uh, white collar because uh, a lack of payment. I looked at it and my first argument was this is a civil matter. This is right. someone needs to be sued. 
not someone needs to be prosecuted. Um, how would you tell the difference when you're when you're looking at a case? How would you tell the difference um, as a prosecutor? And I know, you, you know, we're not we're not asking to please see behind the veil. We're actually asking, you know, how would we know which side of the fence does this sit on? A couple of factors. Right. I want to see is, is this contractor or this person who supposedly has taken this money and, and not uh, paid back or done what they're supposed to do with it? Are they making an effort to do it? Have they come across hard times? You know, we're in the COVID era. Have they, are they having a supply issue? Um, are they not able to obtain the products they need to obtain? Are they trying? Or did they simply take the money and put it into their personal account and bought a Mercedes? Right. <laughs> then we're talking about criminal theft, I think. We're talking about criminal misapplication of fiduciary property. But if they're actually Note making- Note to self, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. but, but if they're making an effort, to me, that takes it out of the criminal realm. Is this a repeated course of conduct? Is this the first time that they've done this in this regard, or, or is this a reoccurring problem that we're seeing with other clients and with other businesses? That's another factor we look at. That kind of makes yeah. sense. Um, yeah. So, so Matt, you've, uh, you know, coming from Johnson County DA, the federal system, federal system uh, over to the Tarrant County DA, you kind of, you definitely paid your dues. I mean, people can argue that you paid your dues with that Johnson County DA stint. Um, what like no over offense these to our friends years, in Johnson County? No, they're they're there in Johnson County. Um, <laughs> so, <clears throat> uh, you know what? I mean, you've seen a lot. You've prosecuted a lot of cases. You've defended your fair share of cases. What what are some good defenses you've seen with some of these white collar, uh, you know, white collar cases? Yeah. So starting with the federal cases. Uh, and I'll tell you, my first day over there, the United States attorney at the time was Erin Neely Cox, and she sat me down and she, she admonished me and she told me, look, especially on these healthcare fraud cases, do not be bringing stuff forward in which uh, you would have a physician or a doctor, or a dentist, what have you, and they're billing for something that, that appears to not have occurred or, or they bill for a different service and they're kind of upcoding. She said, you do not just bring that forward just because the paperwork says that happened. You have to show willfulness. I want willfulness. I want to see that not only did they did do that, but they knew it was wrong. Unless you have that evidence, mm -hmm. we're not bringing those forward. So the key with, pro with white collar prosecutors in the federal system is the key word willfulness and willfulness is they know it's illegal. They know it's wrong. You see that come into play in these kickback statutes too, because, you know, as crazy as it sounds, people get into business transactions. They don't, sometimes they don't know that's actually exactly wrong. So what they want to do is they want to delve into emails, right? And they want to, they want to get search warrants for phones. And this may be surprising, but a lot of these federal prosecutors as brilliant as they are, um, most of them come from big civil firms and they're not exactly great with search warrants and what those entail. And if, when you delve into these search warrants for phones and emails, what you're going to see more times than not are, Hey, look, there's evidence that this person committed a crime. And here's, here's what we think is why here's the evidence we think shows they committed a crime and they have a phone and that's our probable cause. That's what you'll see in these in the search warrant affidavit. But there's nothing that ties the the uh, crime to the email, right? Or nothing that ties the crime to the phone. And they get away with that a lot. So don't let them get away with that. 
right? Challenge that. <laughs> and you see it on the state end too. A lot of these investigators, they, they forget to tie the, the crime into that phone and, and to the email, you know, and there's probable cause to believe there's evidence on that phone. Why? And, and they get away with that quite a bit, especially over in the federal system. Cause a lot of people think, Oh, federal, it must be done right. They win 99.9% of the time, but uh, there are some areas of attack there for sure. Yeah. So the, the, the first line of defense is always look at the probable cause for, for the search, for the seizure. Um, uh, you know, that, that is, that is an obvious, but amazingly, um, I, I, I would admit that I'm guilty if it's, you know, they say they have a search warrant. I, I glance at the search warrant, um, you know, to make sure like they sure. search the right house, but I may not necessarily dig deep into it to go, why did they go to the house minus that my guy lived there? Right. Yeah. You know, so that's, um, uh, something that, that obviously we all have to be careful about, but that's, that's hardly a defense. That's just that first level of how could we possibly get this whole thing thrown out? Um, but, right. but a great reminder, read those search warrant affidavits. Does it actually show probable cause to what they're searching and what they're searching for? Um, yeah, I think it's important to remember, reminder. yeah, that, that it, you know, the, uh, the four corners argument, right? Like the, the search warrant needs to contain the probable cause for what they're searching for. Uh, so, so you're right, Matt, like tie that, tie, make sure that probable cause is tied to what they're searching for why and then it all has to be contained within that four corners you can't just make assumptions be like oh we had this one complaint and so you know this this information may be outside the search warrant no 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 it needs to be contained within that search warrant affidavit um but yeah that that is a great reminder you're right andrew i don't always do my you know 100 percent due diligence on those yeah we get busy we get we're human we're human yeah but but so what's a good let, let, let's say on you know let, any kind of white collar crime there is probable cause they do a search warrant and obviously if we're looking at a business where there's fiduciary duties that have been lacking or kickbacks that shouldn't have occurred you end up with a stack of paper right what where's the, is there is there a defense but what what are some of the reasonable defenses you saw or heard yeah well, like i alluded to earlier for instance, on a fiduciary case where they're saying funds are misapplied, let's look at what effort did they make? What effort did uh, this defendant make to make this right, to actually go through with this transaction? And, um, that, and, and I will tell you, and, and just know this, just being a prosecutor for 11 years and working on these white-collar cases, uh, there is a tendency for defense attorneys to, to like Andrew said, um, see boxes and boxes of information and say, well, damn, I mean, they must have it. But yeah. know that as a prosecutor, when I see a defense attorney who I can tell is actually reading these papers and they're actually putting in the time and putting in the work, um, hey, that sends a sign to them that uh, just to let you know that they're coming and they're going to be ready. And believe it or not, that makes a difference with the prosecutor, what kind of stance they're going to take on the case. No prosecutor will ever admit that. Sure. But, but that makes a big difference. And they'll all have different issues, you know, and you can hire a, a forensic expert of some kind to look through bank records and see things here and there. One big issue they're also going to have when, it, when there's a company involved, 
for instance, and, and in-house corporate theft is tying that exact theft to the defendant. And that was always a challenge as a prosecutor. Um, that's where they're going to have to get into those emails and they're going to have to look at that. Uh, so always looking for the possibility of other folks within the, the uh, corporation committing that offense. Um, that is big as well. Uh, you know, and, and back, to the, back to the issue of all these boxes and boxes of information. The first white collar case I ever had, I was a year out of law school doing a felony case in Johnson County. And um, on the state end, especially in a small county like Johnson County, they don't want to do white collar cases, right? And, and state judges, they hate them. They hate white collar cases. They're clogging up the docket. They're in the way. Uh, they're non 3G, the old term 3G offenses. They don't mean that much to them. But um, we had this one case that I was assigned to, boxes and boxes of information. And uh, at one point in time, we had set it behind a murder case that we knew was going. But this uh, defense attorney on the white collar case thought his case was going as well. So what I did uh, is I I knew the murder case was going, but the defense attorney didn't know. So I, I obtained, I got a bunch of boxes. And in fact, it was about eight boxes. And I had my, my trial partner help me because we wanted to move that case so bad. So we brought in eight, eight boxes of, of uh, just papers and put them, lined them <laughs> all up on the table. And, and I got a PowerPoint and I put the PowerPoint up with the defendant's name on it, not <laughs> exception. And he came in and I said, well, fine. You know, like you said, Andrew, you've got this case that's been pending for years and years. These cases, they sit around forever, right? No one's in yeah. the state court. And I said, here we go. You know, we're finally going to do it. We're, we're, we're going to try this thing today. And here's, look, I got the boxes ready. And, and he says, well, okay, maybe we will take that three deferred, right? <laughs> uh, but Again, a lot, of, a lot of these cases involve just getting your hands dirty and getting into those papers because if you, and it's easier said than done, it's easy for me to say this right here, but if you could just get in there and look at the papers and look at the records, you're going to find issues. Um, it's rare that these cases are just 100% clear cut. You'll find issues. You'll find other people who have hands on those accounts, who have access to the accounts, who are signers on the accounts, other people who can withdraw money, other people who can withdraw cash. And you'll find issues. You just have to get your hands dirty and get into those boxes as hard as it is. Yeah. So in other words, you got to actually do the research, which is um, not always easy, especially when you're talking about boxes of information. Um, uh, well, and, and yeah, information in a foreign language than what, you know, we as attorneys, a lot of us, me in particular, went into this because I didn't, well, I didn't have any science background. I didn't want to do any you know number crunching uh you know and 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 it is it's it's like it's so daunting sometimes you have boxes of financial data that we now have to make sense of our brains just don't work that way right right well another thing i would say too is getting involved early in the case it's easier said than done people hire you when they hire you you get appointed when you get appointed that's the big difference between the state and the federal system is when you get a case in the state system, uh, it's, it's indicted and the prosecution's had it forever and they've been able to make a decision. The beauty of the federal system is if you get involved early, people know like a, an FBI agent goes and sees you early, uh, then you can talk to the prosecutor. 
and um, you can talk about filter terms. You know, if they're doing a search warrant, you can give them terms to look at to, to filter out privileged information. And by DOJ policy, they've got to follow that. Um, but getting involved early is so key because I'll tell you as a prosecutor, the longer they have it and the longer they work on it, the less likely they are to take it off a criminal track and settle it with some kind of civil fine or, or uh, not indicted. So getting involved early is so key in these cases. Yeah, my guess is in part because if you get involved early, you can say, hey, look, this was this is a mistake. How can we, you know, we can pay it back. Um, uh, but the I think the hard part is that anyone handling money is human, right? My, my wife has worked in financial industries in the past and she would have to, she worked in a bank uh, as the HR person and someone who was ever caught taking money out of the till never started taking hundreds of dollars. They started because their kid needed five bucks for the field trip tomorrow and they didn't get paid till tomorrow. So they borrowed and it literally it was they borrowed five or $10 out of their till one evening and replaced it the next day. Well, then that happened a couple of times and they couldn't replace it. And then they, then it was more, and then they got caught because their till was $500 off or something, you know, it was a significant of enough amount and that they wouldn't be criminally prosecuted. Usually it was usually a year terminated, but to get back to it, often you're having to go back a long way to kind of figure out where it started and how and why. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's easy to, to look at money and, and say, hey, that would, that's, I can borrow it, use it, I'm going to pay it back. And well, then you reach a point where there's no way to pay it back. And, and suddenly we're, we're in a criminal place. You know, yeah. I think that's interesting, uh, too, Matt, what you just said, like, if you, you know, get involved early, get in that case early, if it's in the federal system, you can, you can kind of, as a defense attorney, you can coordinate with an FBI agent and tell them like, Hey, these are the cases that need to be off limits. Like, you know, if you are dealing with some proprietary information or protected information of clients or whatever, and they can filter out or filter in certain search terms uh, that they need to be looking for. And that, and that, you know, that's a difference. I think a huge difference in the investigative capabilities of a federal agent versus your local police department. You know, most of the local police departments are just running a full dump of everything. Think about like, yeah. you know, what we deal with a lot is uh, the Celebrite machines on a cell phone. They are, they, are, they are plugging that phone in. They're taking a, what you hope to be a full copy. I hope they're not picking and choosing which files they want um, of like a cell phone or a hard drive. And so I guess like that's just one little difference between the state and federal system what what other you know differences do you think are significant between the two systems yeah so i mentioned this earlier the judges right more likely than not in state court the judges if they see a white collar case and it's sitting around and it's past status set for trial they're pissed they don't want to try this thing so when you're going when you're going into trial on a white collar case the judge is going to be agitated which can sometimes benefit the defense right? Mm -hmm. uh, they might be more inclined to speed things along and not let the prosecutor go through uh, 300 exhibits as to how your client <laughs> meticulously stole every single day for two years. Uh, they're going to say this is repetitive, move it along. Um, 
juxtapose that with the federal system, the judges seem to be more inclined to, to like these white collar cases until here's where this is the big mistake sometimes that you could make in the federal prosecution system here is these multi-defendant cases. You don't really see these as much in state court. Usually they're just trying someone by themselves and uh, there's some, there's some mm -hmm. good case law to get people severed out under uh, in state court. But in the federal system, as of late, they are trying all these people together and they could include 10 people, 20 people, what have you in the same indictment. And the problem is one, and, and I saw this at the DOJ, this is, this is a problem that would occur frequently is you include too many people in that indictment. And there's a tendency to have a, just a slam dunk strong case on one person. And then you include five other people and that fifth person is just nowhere near as culpable as that first person. And it's almost as if you're kind of stretching out to get that fifth person and the prosecution loses sight of the fact because they've got such a great case on persons one, two, three, and four, but they see that five's involved. So they just, they throw him in there in this, in this indictment. Well, then you take that case to a jury and all five of these people are sitting there and you're trying your case and the jury sees, well, what's, what's this fifth guy doing here? I mean, he, he really, can, can they really show that he knew this was wrong, that he knew kickbacks were wrong? And, and they say, well, now if, if, if they're overcharging and reaching out on the, on this fifth guy, then I don't know. I don't know if I feel good about this whole thing. What are they doing? They're supposed to be the good guys. Mm. Right. So I don't, and, and I know that, uh, especially in the Northern district, it seems like they've clamped down on that a bit lately. They're not, they're not moving forward on as many people in the same indictment as they used to. But, um, that is definitely one area of attack I've seen in federal cases. That's one big difference I've seen for sure versus state versus federal, just including more people in the indictment and going forward on more people. Yeah. 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 yeah it's, I think it's, it's a, it's a natural tendency. It's one of the mistakes I see in, in not just in, in criminal law, but also in the civil stuff that I see the, the prosecutor or the plaintiff is so they've got such a good piece that instead of taking the piece they have, they try to take one more bite and it, the house crumbles, right? right? I actually sat on a jury in a civil trial where at the end of the day, the plaintiff had a good case for what they wanted. They put one more piece out there. And as a jury, we went, well, that, that was a lie. We know it was a lie. That one doesn't even work. And so it hurt, it hurt the award that they got all the way across. So I can see that in a, in a prosecution. Talk about mistakes. What a terrible mistake to put you on the jury. Like whoever. Well, I wasn't an attorney at that whoever. point. <laughs> but a preacher? I don't. I would never do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was honest. Yeah. I'm honest. I'm with you, Matt. I'm with you on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Y'all know me. Y'all know that I'm a terrible, terrible person. Okay. So, oh, as a man. defense attorney, right, flipping the script a little bit, yeah. um, we've talked about some of the defenses. What's the greatest hurdle as a defense attorney? that you would see trying to trying to defend one of these cases hey you know in the federal system you're going up against one of the most powerful organizations in the entire world the united states government so you, you got an arm tied behind your back going against those guys and of course the state as well they, they have unlimited amounts of resources they can spend however much they want they have investigators they can look through these records and what it comes down to 
you overcome that hurdle as hard as it is. It's easy for me to sit here and say this, but you overcome that hurdle by rolling up your sleeves and getting to work and, and reviewing that information and, and showing the prosecution that you're going to put in the work, filing those motions, file that motion to suppress, file that discovery motion, put them on notice that, that you're not just going to sit back and take their word for it. This is a slam dunk case. You're going to get your hands dirty and get involved. And trust me, you'll, you'll find some issues. You'll find some issues to deal with in those boxes. But that's the hardest hurdle to overcome is overcoming all those resources that they have. Um, but, but you can do it. It just takes time. Yeah, the, the, the doing the work. One of the white collar crime cases I had, our best defense that she didn't steal was she had cut a uh, cashier's check and had her son go to the, to the construction worker, you know, called him up and said, hey, look, I've got a cashier's check for the full amount. Sign off that you're not going to seek any civil or criminal damages. We'll be done. Yeah. And the contractor wouldn't meet face-to-face with the son to get the, <laughs> the check for $13,000. And you go, then how should... How is she, how is she stealing if she, and we could show how it came out of her bank, went back into her bank two weeks later, you know, and the only thing the guy said was why I didn't feel safe meeting with him. And we, it was like, you couldn't meet at Starbucks. You couldn't meet at the bank. You couldn't, you know, yeah. that alone took a whole lot of steam out of the prosecutor's case. And we ended up, I think paying about half of that to the guy and got, got the case dismissed. So doing the work, what is it that can show this really isn't what it was? Andrew, you got any more questions for Matt? Yeah. Normally, normally I give you an eyeball and, you know, and, and we can see each other, but, you know. I, yeah. yeah. Is Winston is, with you? I, I need to know if Winston's in the room. Oh, yes, of course. Just okay, all right. Napping, napping like per usual. All right, just checking. <laughs> yeah, Matt, I I think this is I think this is interesting, and I and I really think like you know as an Aggie, um, maybe you touched on this a little bit earlier, but you know the, with a as a white collar, I mean you 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 were a poli sci grad, which is what I was at A and M, went to law school. How how did you get into white collar crime? Yeah, I could see the going from poli sci to law school to prosecutor to defense attorney, but, but why white collar specifically? So when I made the move over to Tarrant County and I've always lived in Fort Worth. So they asked me to come join up and I agreed. And I was in the gang unit, not a lot of white collar deals going on in the gang unit these days. I'll tell you that. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, while being in the gang unit, there was a case that came up. And uh, it, it, again, this unit is a white collar public integrity unit. So it involves um, uh, police misconduct type of cases as well. And while I was down there, um, that, granted, this may have been a mistaken, uh, a mistaken belief, but people thought that I was a, a bright, young, hardworking attorney. <laughs> and and the, the white collar unit came across this case uh, with Arlington PD, where they were faking traffic tickets. Uh, these police officers were faking writing tickets, faking traffic stops to boost their statistics. And, wow. um, and they needed someone from the court team to come up and help. And uh, the chief of the criminal unit recruited me to go up there and help them. And, and it was, that's not per se a white collar case, but it's the type of case 
that goes within the white collar genre, and that is looking through tons and tons of data and information, and right? Breaking it down for a jury, breaking it down for people to understand. And I got to learn. And while I was up there working on that case, I got to learn their model, and I got to see other white collar cases, and I became interested. And the main thing that interested me in those cases is that as a prosecutor, you could get involved really early. You know, on the court team, you get a case and the search warrants happen, the arrest warrants happen, and the, they've already talked to the defendant and they've talked to the witnesses and here it is. But in the white collar cases, you're involved from day one and you're looking at the warrants to make sure they're yeah. good. And you're telling the police which witnesses to talk to and, and you know what's happening before they, you, you, you have more control before they go and make that arrest and you can, you can shape that case more to how you want it. And I really like that. I like having that right. kind of control. And from there, I became the chief of that unit. And I got into the federal system because while in Tarrant County, we had this crazy case involving this mental health institution uh, where they were holding people against their will. And we end up prosecuting them as a corporation, indicting them and convicting them. And I worked with the Northern District on that case. And, um, you know, that's how I got to know them. And they told me about an opening over there and that's how I got my foot in the door over there. But yeah. Yeah. So that's how that worked out. No, I love it. And now you're on the defense. So, so it's definitely our, our gain. Um, glad to know that you're, um, you know, so close to, uh, we have a lot of attorneys, a lot of listeners uh, in the, in the Metroplex area, North Texas area. So I know they'll, they'll want to use you as a resource for sure. Yeah. Anytime. Yeah. And by a lot, we mean like we now have 13 followers on Twitter. I mean, a lot. So we have a lot. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll follow you. That'll be 14. <laughs> all right. All right. Um, Fantastic. <laughs> growing every day. Uh, we do have more listeners than that. Just follow our Twitter account is lackluster. Um, so Matt, we asked some, some fun <laughs> questions of people because uh, you know, we find out you're a poli sci major who played basketball at a small central Texas school, um, and, and white collar crime. And, um, well, we come off maybe not as human as we really are. And so we, we want to find out a little bit behind, behind the scenes. So we ask our three fun questions of every guest. The first one is what is your favorite band or musical artist? And you've already, you've already, you haven't told me, but you said, this is not going to be as exciting as I think, or it's going to be really exciting. So I'm now interested in what is your band right. or favorite? Yeah, musical Decker's artist? invested now. I, I like all kinds of music. I, I like everything from classical to country to rock and all that. But, but I'll tell you, I mean, there's no dispute here, right? Uh, when it comes down to it, you got to go with with DMX, right? X is going to give it to you. Okay, <laughs> I love it. I mean, there's nothing like you're running out let's go back to high school you're running out of the tunnel and you're doing warm-ups you're going to try to get a dunk in uh, hopefully you don't embarrass yourself but what helps you get that dunk in there is that you're playing dmx in the background how can you not get pumped up for that game how can you not i love it i was not expecting dmx that that's uh that's I fantastic option. i don't see how it could be anybody else you know? I, i'm yeah, always no, amazed I, i'm with you i'm with you I, i'm often surprised by the musical artist aren't you andy I am. I am as well. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, and I think it like, that's probably the one question that like tells our listeners who that kind of, you know, what type of person they are, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh oh, that's great, man. When okay, did, so when did you graduate? Uh, when did you graduate from A&M? 2006. 
Okay, 06. All right. I'm an 04 grad. Good deal. All right. what about like uh, like your favorite book or one that you've read recently? So I'm pretty boring, right? The, the books I read, sadly, come down to the penal code, criminal, criminal procedure, United States code, you know, sentencing guidelines, and, and maybe the Bible every now and then. <laughs> hey, read the Bible and listen to some DMX and you're good, right? But, <laughs> you got it all covered. Great, great life advice. But, but my kid, I, I've got a second grader. His name is Andrew believe it or not it's a strong name great name and, yeah uh he's really into hank the cow dog I, i'm i'm getting into that i mean hank the cow dog takes me back to fifth grade and uh he, he reads those uh-huh. to me and they're, hey they're, they're 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 fantastic what's not to like about hank the cow dog i can't argue with that <laughs> all right so i love it last question best piece of advice you've been given it could be professional or personal but a piece of advice that really you're like this one this one's different so going into college, uh, I wasn't a great student in high school, turned it around in college and in law school, and graduated at the top of the class at those two places, but high school wasn't the case. So when I was going to college, I was kind of nervous. So I was playing basketball at the same time. And I was like, my God, am I going to flunk out? And uh, there was a guy on my basketball team. He was a senior from Corsicana. And uh, the first day of class, he told me, he said, hey, look, like, show up read and do the work and just put the work in and you'll get an A in all these classes. And I thought, oh, that can't be right. I mean, it's college. It's going to be so much harder than that. And he was exactly right. <laughs> just show mm-hmm. up, do the work, put in the time. And that is applied not only to college, but it's applied to the practice of law and law school and all that stuff. So that's the best advice I've ever been given. Simple advice, but advice that uh, reigns true today. Just show up, put in the time, roll those sleeves up, get to work and good things will happen. Yeah, man, I, I love that. I, I'm amazed at how many hard projects or hard cases are simplified if you just just do the work. You know, just take it one bite at a time, and and you know you'll you'll handle it in no time flat. I, I love that, man. Okay, so Matt, obviously you you're bringing some skills to the show that that well Andy and I have, but maybe not maybe not as strong as you do. Uh, so if so, one of our listeners and a lot of them are other defense attorneys uh, need your assistance or some guidance, or, you know, maybe somebody wants to hire you because, um, well, they might, they might've been reaching into some funds they weren't supposed to. Uh, how would they find you? How or they reach accused you? of it. Uh, allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> how could somebody find you? And, and you don't have to give out your personal cell phone number, but uh, where's someplace they might be able to get a hold of you. Oh, that's right. And, and I, Cell is the best. I'll go ahead and give you my cell phone, right? <laughs> I, I, I know you. I know you guys. I know you guys have good, responsible listeners, so they would not abuse this phone number. So I, I'm gonna go ahead and put it out there. It's Old. Eight one seven five zero seven six seven seven five, and my email address is matt. It's m a t t at matt smid. That's s m i d law dot com. And Andy, you'll put those in the show notes for us. Absolutely. I've actually found the show notes, Andrew. Fantastic. I am so happy that we're almost 16 times. Right. After almost 65 episodes, I can find the show notes for for a podcast now. Well, and the listeners should know, like, I have shown you where these are at at least five different times. I don't believe that. I don't believe that's true at all. I'm happy to know that you found them. All right. If any of our listeners need help 
finding the show notes where all this great information for each and every episode is located, you can reach Andrew Decker at our website, texascrimdefense.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. And our Twitter handle is at A-N-A-C-R-M-D-E-F. And you can find us there. Rolls right off the tongue, doesn't it? it and it's it, it, it's Twitter. It's You can only have some. <laughs> well, that's another episode. We, we greatly appreciate. Uh, and now that we're a couple of weeks into the new year, we hope you're having a great new year. Uh, we hope that unlike Andrew, you are not having to quarantine. But if you are, please stay safe. Get vaccinated uh, because we want to see you in person. Uh, and in the meantime, take care. <laughs>